Hi everyone! Today, me and Ren are going to be taking a look at their graphic novel, The House on Capel Hill. In particular, we're going to be taking a look at the first chapter of the work, which is called The Book of Ket. Hi there, everyone. It's nice to be back. It's good to be good to be back on the on the program. <laughs> exactly. I think it's been nearly half a year since we last made an episode about your work. Yeah, it's been a hot minute. <laughs> <laughs> How has your work changed since the last time we talked about it? Mm, um, it's a little difficult to say without giving too many spoilers um, because I'm writing the different. Uh, pieces not necessarily in order just um, you know if I have thoughts on one I'm like oh I need to jot this down just pull that one open jot down what I need to and um, sort things out from there uh, I've been working more on some of the latter half of the series or what will be the latter half of the series um, uh, and really trying to solidify each of the characters that I need um, as far as the, the nine main characters for each of the stories. Mm -hmm, right. And is the book of Ket nearly finished? Because it's basically the first book of the series, right? And you've been right. mostly focusing on the later ones. Um, yes. So basically what I've been trying to do is um, write very rough outlines of what's going to happen in each of these volumes. And as soon as I have like my major plot points and, you know, maybe some finer details of um, some scene dialogue and stuff like that, uh, then, you know, once I have all of those rough outlines done, then I'm going to start and go back to each one and take each outline and turn it into a detailed script. And then, you know, after I have all my scripts, start drawing uh, panels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this sounds like a really good plan. It's really great to have everything planned out. So, you know, you can actually have a better idea of how to start doing the panels, which will be, I guess, the fun part, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's probably going to be the most grueling part, just in the sense that, um, as, as, as you've seen from some of my art, uh, I like to go into a lot of detail. Um, but there, you know, when you're drawing panels, you can't, dedicate that much time to the itty bitty things you, you need to be able to uh, consistently recreate um, characters and appearances that are recognizable and immediately mm -hmm. readable to your audience. Right. So, in a, in a, a lot. It is. Yeah, I totally agree, especially when some of the characters, you have so many of them, too. You don't want their you don't want their designs to overlap or, get, you know, get people confused about who's who. Yeah, that's that's definitely been a challenge. Um, uh, and and another challenge that I've posed for myself is that my main character that we're going to meet and discuss uh, for the Book of Ket um, their appearance changes throughout the story. So I have to find a way to be able to just very gradually tweak that, their physical appearance, but still make it recognizable that this is the same character, which is a mm. lot, <laughs> but it can be done. That's true. And will this character's appearance be shifting in the book of Ket already? No, not not for the book of Ket, um, just because this is that character's story. Um, so we're going to the book of Ket will be following um, her whole life up until a certain moment that is really the actual start of the story. So um, the way it's going to be presented is very much uh, we think that this one book is 
a whole story in and of itself. And it seems like it's wrapping up pretty nicely. But then something happens and we realize, oh, this was never going to be the whole story, just Josephine and Claude. That's not that's not this, the whole story of Capel Hill. So um, it, it will definitely leave a nice place for the reader to wonder what's happening in the next volume. Uh, mm. It's definitely a little bit of a bait and switch, um, very much in the... I guess you could compare it to something like Into the Woods where, you know, first act, you think you think everything is wrapped up very neatly, all the all the loose ends tied. But then the second act comes up and you're like, oh, I guess I guess that's not true. I guess there's more story to tell here. Mm -hmm, right. So um, as a reference back to our earlier episodes, the Book of Ket is actually a reference to ancient Egyptian mythology, which plays a very large role in your works. Can you summarize once again for us, you know, especially for those who are new to the podcast, what the Book of Ket is supposed to be tied to in Egyptian mythology? Absolutely. Um, in ancient Egypt, it was believed that uh, a human being in their entirety was made up of nine pieces, um, which if you really condense all of those pieces into themselves, you could condense them into the Western idea we have of a mind, a soul, and a body. Um, but the Egyptians had a lot more specific ideas about that. Um, and the Ket, one of those pieces, is the physical form. That's part of um, a human being or you know, a, an, an entity that has sentience. Um, it's a, the vessel that carries all the aspects of a person's mind, their spirit, their personality, their magic, their, you know, other kinds of power. Um, and the Ket, of course, in, in ancient Egypt, the body was very much revered and it was believed that you would need that body again even after you died, which was why that they preserved it so carefully uh, and so meticulously. Um, so... And I wanted to start with Ket in the series because that's something that anybody can understand. We all have bodies. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to start with concepts that were more familiar um, and gradually work my way up to concepts that were a little more foreign to most audiences if they're not you know, deeply familiar with Egyptian mythology and philosophy. Um, so it's a very it's a very uh, straightforward story, um, and uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely um, starting from a place of, you know, when you look at a person's body, you make a judgment about them, and it's very much the same in this story that we look at Josephine and we make a judgment about her as the audience, and her world is also making a judgment at her just from looking at her on the outside. And so the, there's there's definitely some um, uh, symbolism that's not exactly subtle going on there. Mm -hmm. Right, and what society is Josephine living in? It's not Egyptian society. So it's quite a contrast yes. to the other themes that we do see explored. Yes, so... Um, most of the uh, settings that I'm going to be using in these stories are um, sort of alt-universe, um, British Empire, you know, sort of your Scotland butt or England butt or Wales butt if, and that kind of thing. And um, part of the reason that has um, 
there are there are many reasons that I've chosen to do that, and there is a reason that um, that I'm using this Egyptian uh, philosophy to tie everything back in. And um, part of the reason that I chose to, very specifically to use like alternate versions of these countries is that the way that the Egyptian mythology ties back into the story is that there was a legend. Some people believe it's real, some don't. Um, that uh, the the Egyptian pharaohs were descended from Celtic princes who made their way to Egypt, and that there was a an Egyptian princess uh, named Skopta, who uh, uh, during a time of persecution made her way to Egypt with certain retinue. Um, there is in fact a, a landmark in Scotland called Skopta's grave, and they believe that's where the name of Scotland came from. But again, this is legend. So I wanted to make sure that um, it could not be interpreted that I am uh, uh, accepting that story as fact. All of these stories take place in a world where maybe legends are true. Um, so that's where I wanted to kind of tie that back in. Mm -hmm, right. Is there magic in these alternative versions of your world? There are, um, to varying degrees. So when we meet Josephine, her village you see as part of their culture they have kind of a a folk tradition that's definitely very witchy but to them it's just kind of a quaint thing that people do if they don't really believe in the magic in it but as the story progresses and um and our characters you know drift into other universes and other timelines um, they do happen upon civilizations that have actual magic, working magic of different kinds. Mm, I see. So it's, it di actually differs from world to world, like how people interpret magic and what it means. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Are any of the worlds inspired by Egypt itself? Um, I'm still working on that <laughs> because uh, one of the books is going to very specifically deal with all of these um, Egyptian philosophies, just like very uh, uh, directly. Whereas the first three books kind of hint at it or maybe don't even discuss it at all. The book of Ket doesn't really touch on it. The book of Ka, the second book does like just hint at it a little bit. And the third book, the, third, the book of Eve will have more allusions, but the fourth book, the book of Shut, where um, Josephine is going to be interacting with their shadow is where we're really going to see how the specific Egyptian beliefs play into the story. Mm -hmm. I see. So let's get back to the book of Kets. What is the major plot point? What are the major plot points? And what do you think um, it, the story is actually about, you know, in terms of themes? Is it just mostly about Josephine and how people perceive her versus how she is starting to perceive herself? And, you know, that leads us to learn more about how she will change as a character in the later books. Right. That's a that's a very good question. Um, uh, as far as the major plot points go, the book of Ket is, we're mostly looking at, we're looking at Josephine's life, how she's been raised, the society she's in. It's very Victorian. Um, that book is going to be set in the mid 19th century. Um, so we're looking at a society that we get a lot of our own very regressive um, ideas about gender roles and ideas about um, the place that a person has in society based on any number of factors, their gender, their class, their ethnicity, etc. Um, 
And uh, so we're, we're taking a look at Josephine's life and this sort of underlying discontent and you know this kind of confusion and discomfort that keeps getting brushed over, keeps getting dismissed and ignored. Um, and she lives in a very quaint little town that's a very, uh, you know, in a very British setting. It's very much like a village, lots of drama. And uh, the story takes a bit of a turn and we think we're going to see change for Josephine when a new family arrives in this village and kind of set themselves up with an estate and stuff and just kind of try to um, squeeze their way into the society of that area. Um, successfully or otherwise, and um, how one of the, you know, Josephine kind of feels for these people because she understands what it's like to feel like an outsider, even though there's no reason you shouldn't belong. Um, so um, it's definitely about, uh, it's definitely a book about expectations. It's a book about the way people see you and how that affects your life and how that affects your choices and your actions and the person that you get to be. Um, and it's not as much about challenging them at first. Um, initially, we, we just see Josephine just kind of like, all right, I guess this is what I have to be. She's very resigned. Um, uh, but when she starts interacting with the Capel family, who are the new, the new folks in town, um, there's sort of a feeling of camaraderie and her perspective starts to shift from uh, complacency to a little bit more authenticity, but that gets that gets pushed to another level when um, the happy ending that she thought she finally got gets turned upside down. Mm-hmm. So that's where the the name of your work comes from, Capel Hill. Yes. Um, so it's it was going to be sort of, a, and and it's going to be a recurring theme that the hill that they decide to plant their estate on used to be called Chapel Hill, and we revisit that locale in every one of these universes. Um, but when they move in and build their estate, it starts to colloquially, locally be called Capel Hill. Um, mm -hmm. So it's, it's an important spot that we return to throughout the story. Mm -hmm. And I think Josephine, as she changes throughout her different incarnations, she will revisit this place, and maybe she will you know, every time she visits it, you know, there's ha there has been something different about her. Exactly. There's going to be something different about her that she finds there. And there's going to be something um, different about the place itself. And, and um, yeah, that it, it's, it all sounds very abstract, of course, but it's, um, it's definitely a story about evolution, self-evolution. Mm -hmm. Right. Who's Claude? You did mention Claude at oh. the beginning of this podcast. So yes. you can maybe outline his role <laughs> in the story without, you know, without overt spoilers, of course. Okay. <laughs> well, um, Claude is the eldest son of the Capel family, and he's the first one who meets Josephine when they arrive. Uh, most of the rest of the village is kind of sunk into gossiping, etc. But Josephine is genuinely curious and wants to, you know, poke around, see what she finds. And um, those two, because they have opposite yet complementary expectations thrust upon them, she's the youngest, she's, um, you know, she's a female. She's, uh, you know, in a 
upper middle class family so she has certain expectations of her of what she's supposed to do in her society and you know that mostly amounts to being a proper lady and marrying someone and having lots of babies and for claude as the eldest of his family it's definitely expected for him to carry on the family name and find some uh equally disposed proper young lady to um to marry and carry on the family lineage so they they kind of have this uh empathy for each other that like yeah you know we we have these roles that we're supposed to play and we're not really sure how we're supposed to do that but maybe we can figure it out together um so and he he kind of he grants her a lot of uh a lot of sympathy because of that and he's one of the first people to really look at her as a whole person and not just the role she's supposed to play and, and he's one of the first people to really appreciate josephine as an entire person mm -hmm. so i guess in a way he kind of kick starts the journey he does he does and it's it's there's definitely going to be a lot of um defiance of expectation there um you already know about it but no spoilers um, <laughs> but um he is an important character and he gets revisited several times during the course of the story um but his role changes every time because josephine is changing all the time and because because she is changing her relationship to him also changes and um it there there's a certain discovery that she can't just go back to the way things were before the adventure started mm -hmm. does claude himself change no <laughs> he's kind of he's kind of static but there are reasons for that um i felt what it was important for him to be stable um to be sort of this anchoring force in josephine's adventure for good or ill um because the story is not about him you know there could be a whole nother set of books that are that are about claude but um probably not gonna happen <laughs> that makes sense yeah otherwise it will be very distracting too if he was you know as dynamic as josephine yeah and and um we get to see more than one facet of him certainly during the course of the series but he as a character, like what, you know, what he looks like and what, um, who he is as a person doesn't really change very much. Mm -hmm. Right. And what is the connection to Wales? Is, um, you know, the Capel Hill, that group of people, are they connected to Wales? Uh, well, <laughs> So I, I had planned for um, each of these books to take place in a different um, alternate version of the British Empire, like I said. Um, the Book of Ket actually takes place more in like a fictionalized Scotland, but one of the future books, um, in fact, two of the future books will deal pretty heavily with Welsh mythology. Um, I think there is a... Um, I think there is a lot of commonality between these kingdoms in that whether you look at Scotland or you look at Ireland or you look at Wales, which all of those cultures are going to be featured um, to one extent or another. Um, 
there is this commonality of colonization in their history where um, whether you want to call that the English or the Anglo-Saxons or the Norse, because the Norse definitely came through and destroyed a lot of stuff. Um, <laughs> but there's uh, there's this commonality of trying to cling to your culture. Um, and I thought that was, you know, your culture being part of your identity and part of who you are as an individual um, was part of the story to play there. Um, and with Wales in particular, that again, I'm going to get into that a little bit more in the later books, but uh, there, there, there are some cultural ties that that will bring the story together, particularly in terms of mythology. Mm-hmm. Right. Does Claude is Claude also related to the the Wales connection? Because you know, he you did say he was from out of town, right? So that kind of irked. Per, piqued my interest i thought he oh, would, okay. would have had like some kind of connection there um you know there there might yet be the major um implication of them being from somewhere foreign uh was that they themselves had jumped universes uh oh. but i think i think in the lore of their family they will probably be from Wales, and there is actually going to be a little like I don't know what you would call it. I guess like a side story or like an extra chapter that's going to get explored about the history of the Capel family. That's just like it's it's it is going to be at some of the loose ends of the series of Capel Hill. Um, but it's not a, a feature that's just that's that centers around Josephine like the rest of the stories. It's just kind of like a, a backstory to their family and why they're going through the things that they're going through. So mm -hmm. within that, um, I'll definitely explore where they were actually from. <laughs> <laughs> Is the book of Ket told from a first person perspective or a third person perspective? Uh, there, I would say that um, it's going to be told from a from a third person perspective, and I would like to keep most of the books that way, just in the sense that I want them to read a lot like a fairy tale or an adventure story, um, but play with the expectations of what a fairy tale or or an adventure story looks like. Mm, I see. Right. So we don't, we are not really going to see, you know, drastic changes of point of view, like jumping from book to book. Um, they will be all written from a perspective, but uh, the, the character perspectives will be changing from book to book. So the book of Ket, you know, of course it centers around Josephine, um, but there will be other books where we're experiencing uh, different pieces whole entire life and story. And Josephine might not even be involved until close to the end, or maybe she's seeing snippets of that character's life um, over the course of the story. But again, we she doesn't interact directly um, from beginning to end. And, this, and the, the book won't be written from Josephine's point of view. Mm, right. Yes, I see. 
So um, you're done the outline for the Book of Cats, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Do you think you'll be revisiting the outline once you finish the outlines for all of the other books? Absolutely. Um, I read through them all a lot just to make sure that I am taking care of loose plot threads and um, that I might have left in there. Uh, I will definitely be revisiting that once I'm I have more at least more of the other outlines completed so that I can really go through it and decide, uh, you know, how do I want the script treatment for this to work? Because there are some places where the outline is specific and it's like, here's the dialogue and it's already written. So I have to, you know, I have to, I can go back to it later and maybe I'll have forgotten everything I wrote in there and still be able to go back and pick it up and, uh, sort of translate it, if you will, into a script. Mm, I see. In your opinion, which was the easiest part of writing the outline for the book of Ket? Which was the hardest? Oh, man. Um, hmm. I would say that the hardest, th well, the hardest part of writing the book of Ket uh, was mostly um trying to think about the historical context and the class you know as an american i don't i haven't experienced for forever um so i you know i have plenty of research still to do on that um but think about how how um the capels versus josephine's family the lilies how they you know uh, interacted with the rest of the village, the the role that these families play, and how that society runs. Um, certainly, thinking about uh, surrounding events um, of the time that I can uh, that I can sort of play. definitely default. Um, I showed you today. I had some notes that I found in my storage unit that I had written for myself uh, <laughs> ages ago, like, God, I can't believe I'm saying this, like more than 10 years ago, um, for whatever iteration of Capel Hill that I was working on at the time. And, uh, you know, it was like double checking, like, okay, were these things, did these things exist during the time that you're going to be writing about? What were the major events? What were the major wars going on? Uh, you know, and thinking about like, what would their parents have experienced? What would their grandparents have experienced? And how would that affect how Josephine and Claude are brought up in their own lives? Um, and, uh, you know, part of the way that I'm constructing these alternate universes is looking at a lot of those great wars and saying, well, you know, what if that war was lost instead of one? What if, you know, something else happened in that moment? where would the culture go? Where would the language go? Where would the costuming go and the architecture and all of that stuff? Um, the easiest part, uh, I, I don't know, I hope this doesn't make me like a sadistic author, but um, the easiest part <laughs> for me was, is writing like the, the emotionally hard parts that are like, you know, when the, the plot twist happens and, the situation hits the fan.
that that's the easiest part for me to write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I would have to agree with you. Those parts are typically easy to write because I think some of them are very, you know, relatable. And that's why sometimes we feel drawn to writing these situations because they reflect on things we've seen or experienced or, you know, feel very strongly about. Absolutely. And, and that in and itself, in and of itself is part of the point of writing this entire series is that um, they are fictionalized autobiography, if you will, like there are, there are experiences in those books that are things that I've experienced maybe through the veneer of a, of a fairy tale or, or myth. Um, and of course, that's a little difficult to grapple with because that's, that's sharing some very vulnerable things. Um, but it also, for me, it was more about get, having the chance to let other people who have experienced similar things say, oh, I'm not alone. Somebody else has experienced this and can put it in a way that I can understand and maybe even show others when I'm trying to explain to them what this feels like. Mm -hmm. That makes so sense. That was definitely a huge um, motivation for writing this. Mm -hmm. How did you find writing the dialogue? Dialogue can be a little, it's really tricky for me. Um, and I really, it's so important for me to get third party uh, feedback and criticism because I will write dialogue and I'll look at it and I'll be myself yeah this sounds pretty good and then maybe come back to it later and think nobody talks like this <laughs> um, so dialogue is definitely a really big challenge for me but fortunately I have friends like you and uh, Tay Tay and, and um, several others who have been willing to read my outlines and you know give me their thoughts, give me some pointers. And um, I definitely look at other writers whose dialogue I enjoy a lot and try to find out, you know, try to determine, well, what is it about this that really clicks for me? What is it about this style that communicates what it needs to? And, but never, it never feels stagnant, never feels boring. Um, you know, trying to learn from other resources. Mm-hmm. You're going to be going back to it anyways after you do all of the all of the um the skeletons and you know basically you're going to actually be writing it line by line the dialogue afterwards yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you have plenty of time to go back on the dialogue you currently have and reshape it as needed absolutely and um i look forward to that opportunity just in the sense that you know i've never really written something that detailed. I, I've, I've attempted to write scripts. In fact, I attempted to write a script for this project when it was still in a different stage of its evolution. And um, the exercise itself is fun and interesting, and it really forces you to um, think about what your audience is going to see and what they're going to read and how they're going to process that and thinking about like how I want the angles and how I want to describe each scene so that you know, future self can put all of it together <laughs> and make sense out of it. Uh, well, mm -hmm. Yeah. So how do you feel about like, you know, narration, for example, are there going to be parts where, you know, words are not spoken by the characters, but, you know, just basically by the narrator? 
Absolutely. There are absolutely going to be places that are just narrated in, you know, a fancy script. <laughs> um, I think that was one thing I learned from uh, reading a lot of um, vintage manga and particularly uh, Osama Tezka's work. He did Astro Boy and such. Um, was that sometimes he would have like a whole page or two page spread of just a landscape with tons of little text boxes to just info dump everything that you needed without it taking up too much space or giving you too many things to pay attention to so that you still felt emerged, immersed in the world that he was presenting to you, but you also didn't feel completely lost for context. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think manga is a very good way to learn this because, you know, I really like how a lot of manga, including the ones you just talked about here, they basically just have these long sections which are very peaceful to read. You know, it's either a background or a black background or, you know, space if it takes place in space. And then, you know, you yeah. have all these little boxes telling you what's happening or what is happening after a time skip or a specific event or even a flow of consciousness. Absolutely. And I, I see that as an opportunity. I see it as an opportunity to take my text and make it more artistic and make it creative and take my audience on a little um, And something that's crept into my visual art as well is finding ways to direct the eyes around the canvas where I want people to look. Um, and, and I think that that is something that translates really well to graphic novels. Mm-hmm, definitely. It's basically just kind of refashioning a lot of stuff you see in novels, but for a more visual-oriented medium. Mm, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. a great way to tell a story. Mm-hmm, it is. And, you know, it's very cinematic, too. That's another thing I've always loved about graphic novels. It's unlike comic strips, which are more like for a short things you know for example like Garfield or something graphic yeah. novels really take you into the work itself kind of like watching a movie absolutely um I think where comic strips are kind of vaudeville they're just like short little pieces of entertainment uh graphic novels are more like an opera where you are you are committing to an adventure for a while and you know there are overtures there's there's um you know, there's plenty of buildup to get you uh, to get you involved in this world as a reader. And there's there's um, sort of a relationship that that gets built between the author and the reader um, that in a way that comic strips just stay very stagnant in a way like they're very um, they're very direct one view, one angle uh they're meant to be repetitive they're meant to have a formula that kind of gets thrown out the window with uh graphic novels mm -hmm. absolutely so any other things you wanted to share about the book of cats um gosh that's a really good question and no spoilers <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh you know the book of cat is I think it's it was the easiest to write and I think it was the you know I think it really held a place as the first book in the series because the elements of that story were the ones that I had held on to for so 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 long when this event you know originally began as just a story about a disgruntled time traveler 
you know, there were so many elements of this story that I have um, held on to and I have developed for over a decade. And um, it's really satisfying to, to finally see them become a part of something bigger that communicates more, not just about me and my experiences, um, but also communicates to others' experiences as well. Mm -hmm. Those are great words to end the podcast on. Thank you. <laughs> so next time we'll be exploring the book of Ka, right? Yes. It, I think that one's going to be a little fun. I think it's going to be a little more, um, going to require a little more explanation as far as what a Ka is as opposed to a Ket. I think you know, like I said, everybody has a body. We, we get that. We understand what that is. <laughs> but um, a lot of these terms are more ab abstract and require a little more explanation. Mm -hmm. And does the Book of Ka, is it about a different character? Um, the, and the nice thing about Book of Ka is, is that it, um, it is still about Josephine to a to a large extent but we're starting to see that there are other characters who play more of a part in the story than we think at first and that the story isn't all about josephine in a sense even though because these other characters are a part of josephine it still is about josephine mm -hmm, that's true right thank you so much thank you for having me it's been great to be back yeah i can't wait to have more podcasts with you again I'm super looking forward to it. <laughs> I know. Me too. Bye. Bye.